The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Abraham Lincoln once supposedly won a court case by using this punchline from a story about a hired hand and a farmer's daughter up in the hayloft. My learned opponents have their facts exactly right, but they have drawn completely wrong conclusions. Professor Mark Egnall has drawn similar comments from reviewers who have questioned the interpretation he offers in Clash of Extremes, The Economic Origins of the Civil War. We'll see if we can find out what really is going on in the hayloft when we talk today with Mark Egnall on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to talk. Are you a student? Maybe you've just started going back to school or are thinking about it. If you're interested in adult education, tune in to Learning as an Adult with your host, John Steely. Our program will cover topics you can use if you're a current or future student in any learning environment. You can be learning online or in a classroom. Either way, John will help you with problems, issues, and concerns facing students every single day. Tune in to Learning as an Adult with John Steely every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. We all lead busy lives, and sometimes we think we can't take care of our health. We battle food addictions, time restrictions, and media conflictions when it comes to our health. Now, you can tune in to the Dare to Be Healthy Show with host Alia Almoayed. Good health comes to those who dare to take the leap into the amazing world of natural healing. Find out what it's like to look and feel great. And finally, live your life to its maximum potential. Let Alia and her guests show you how. Dare to Be Healthy is broadcast live Mondays at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the chilly campus of East Carolina University on a cold Friday afternoon in January 2011, our first show of the new year. And Happy New Year to listeners everywhere. Thanks for downloading or listening live, as the case may be, to the show. We're looking forward to a, a good year here at Civil War Talk Radio. We have interesting shows, a fascinating book to discuss today. Next week, Peter Carmichael, the new director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, will be joining us. Um, he was supposed to have been with us in October, but had a minor, very minor medical uh, conflict and couldn't be here that day, but we've got him back. Uh, Jennifer Weber, who we missed in December, will be back on the show in April. We've got her rescheduled to talk about Copperheads in the North. Um, two weeks from now, October, no, not October, January 21, no new show. That's the annual Deans and Chairs Retreat here at East Carolina University, and I'll say a word about that momentarily. Uh, the following shows, uh, a few more lined up, January 28th, Thomas Mackey. He's the director at the Abraham Lincoln Museum on the campus of the Lincoln Memorial University in eastern Tennessee, Harrogate. Uh, uh, and then we've got John Marzalek, an old friend of the show who's been on before, uh, biographer of Sherman, and most recently the director of the Grant Papers Project, succeeding the late John Y. Simon. And on February 11th, we've got Dan Weinberg, the proprietor of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, another friend of the show, will be rejoining us. So we've got some uh, uh, familiar voices and some new voices. 
I've maintained an informal five-year rule on the program, which when I thought, when I started doing this, I thought would mean nobody would ever be on twice. But as it turns out, it's uh, it, it's been over seven years, and we now definitely will have folks who've been on more than once. Uh, they've had time to write another book or do something new, so we'll be having some folks back. And as always, if you want to contribute to the show, uh, donate to the book and libation fund uh, Civil War TR at AOL.com is the place to send your contribution through the miracle of PayPal. If you send $25, I'll be happy to unload a few copies of uh, books lying around here, Did Lincoln Own Slaves and All for the Regiment. Uh, so feel free to take advantage of that. And finally, a reminder that uh, what I called last year the coolest thing ever continues to be uh, that uh, now moving ahead of, of, of penicillin uh, on the all-time list of, of most useful things to mankind, it's the www.impedimentsofwar.org, the website for Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, not only does it have a uh, more reliable site uh, with links to all the old shows on it, but it also has a Facebook presence. So if you're not wasting enough time in your week, and I know I'm not, uh, Facebook is a sure cure for that. Uh, you can go there to the Impediments of War page and uh, see comments from other Civil War talk radio listeners. So lots going on. Um, I will not actually, in second thought, say anything more about the chairs and dean's retreat, which will interfere with us having a live show on January 21, because all we're going to do there is talk to one another about the dismal state of the state budget here in North Carolina and what havoc it's going to wreak on higher education. Uh, my non-tenured colleagues are trembling, uh, unfortunately. Uh, certainly the fixed-term faculty are, are beyond trembling with concern about their fates in the fiscal year uh, or years ahead and the uh, possibility of, of losing people at a time when the university student population continues to grow is, is dreadful to contemplate. It means either we won't teach as effectively or we won't do any more writing and researching. Uh, and it's... it's uh, it's not a happy time in higher education in a lot of places. California and others have suffered this for several years. It's catching up to North Carolina now. Uh, but uh, as Monty Python says, this is supposed to be a happy occasion. So we're going to move on from those thoughts and get back to the 19th century uh, to uh, clash of extremes, the economic origins of the Civil War, uh, a reasonably new book written by uh, Professor Mark Egnall, who joins us today. Mark, are you there? Yes, I am. And, and, welcome and to we're the having the same academic fun and games up here in Ontario that you're having down there in North Carolina. Now, you're at the uh, University of Toronto? Uh, York University. At York University. The other right. university in the city of Toronto. That's right. I got the city right then. Uh, so things are not so, uh, so great on the budget front? Uh, uh, I don't think they probably are any place, and certainly not here. Well, that, that's un unfortunate. I guess misery loves company, but uh, it, it, it's, we just have to wait for the economy to come around and uh, return things to the days when uh, we, we could realistically talk about traveling to a conference or even taking time off to write. Uh, that's, that's not happening much anymore. That's a pleasant thought. Uh, well, but we can uh, get together through the miracle of talk radio. That's true. So, how, what? How did you get to York University? What did you uh, do before that? Uh, Where did you study? My uh, background is uh, American by birth, Philadelphia, and uh, undergraduate at uh, Swarthmore near Philadelphia, and graduate work at University of Wisconsin. And York, uh, quite remarkably, was my first position, and has remained that. So. If, been there for uh, several millennia, as I tell my students. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, that that's uh, a good good thing to have. Uh, stability is is a good thing. The uh, there are those who are fighting the tenure system, but it has, I think, the great virtue of giving people the the stability to focus on their their work, their research, and not have to worry about uh, agreed uh, uh, the, the the next the next position necessarily. Let's, let's hope that it uh, continues for a while. 
certainly. So we, we've just uh, started a new term here. I was in the classroom this morning and uh, teaching about the Civil War to uh, a new group, and that makes it all worthwhile seeing the new the new mm-hmm. students and getting people back into it. Well, let me jump into to your book, and, and I gave a, a clue about this in the introduction. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say... Uh, from the reviews, and you have a very handy web page that uh, collects reviews of your book in one place. I did not read any of those reviews consciously until I'd read your book first, uh, not wanting to be swayed. Um, but it's safe to say that there, uh, there's a a mixed result, and I I had a mixed reaction. I there's a right like I like ninety percent of what I read, and, and then ten percent left me baffled. So so maybe we can talk about both percents today. Okay. Um, let me start. Let me just ask you to lay out the the argument. Uh, the subtitle calls it an economic interpretation, and the some of the readers, listeners, might be saying, "Well, didn't that go out with uh, Charles and Mary Beard? What, what's this guy doing? So, what are you doing?" Okay, uh, I think there's a prevailing interpretation today, and it's the one that uh, Jim McPherson and, and a lot of others have. And if that's can be boiled down, and it probably can, to one word. It would be slavery, and a few more words would say a moral concern about slavery, that the North was firmly convinced that slavery was immoral and should be ended, and the South was completely dedicated to preserving its institution, and the result of this clash was civil war. So my book, which is over 400-some pages, yeah, if if it too could be boiled down to one word, and that would be economics. And what I argue in a slightly fuller version of that summary is that more than any other single factor, the evolution of the northern and southern economies brought about the war. And in emphasizing economics, I want to quickly add and emphasize that I say more than any other single concern, but the book uh, has... A chapter and discussions beyond that on the abolitionists, on the anti-slavery movement. It looks at religion. It spends a lot of time with politics. Uh, the book deals with, uh, as, again, since you've looked at it, you know, uh, deals with a lot of individuals, a lot of, uh, much of it's based on biographies. So I move far away from anything which could be called simplistic. The Beards, to get uh, back to your question, the Beards I see is a uh, creaky, mechanistic, simplistic explanation where there are larger forces. They have uh, one chapter or part of a chapter called the uh, March of the Census where they see the North growing more industrial and the South growing more agricultural. And you hear these looming larger forces bringing on the conflict. Uh, what I'm looking at in, in Clash of Extremes is really divisions and sections within sections, regions, and a lot of uh, a lot of trends and uh, evolution, which uh, really break down North and South into their uh, components. Well, you start out talking about uh, the American economy in in the 1820s uh, moving forward, and I thought you'd do a very interesting job showing how how integrated it was on a north-south axis in that time and how that changed over time. Uh, Could you describe that process? For sure. One of the things that uh, I argue is that as the economy would drive the two sections apart after mid-century, after 1850. So it brought it together. There were serious grave conflicts uh, before mid-century, conflicts that were, in many respects, uh, every bit as challenging as the one that the ones that the country faced in the 1850s over Kansas and the uh, issues of the Fugitive Slave Act. So the Missouri Compromise and the uh, admission of, of new states and the immediate aftermath of the Mexican War. But there were strong uh, centripetal forces, forces bringing them together. One of them, 
uh, one of the key ones that I emphasize is the north-south axis created by trade on the Mississippi so that the northwest of states like Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, uh, eventually Wisconsin, which comes in the late 1840s. Uh, these states uh, initially sent most of their goods down the Mississippi and had an interest in keeping the country together. The uh, manufacturing interests of New England used the cotton crop. The, the merchants of New York and, to a lesser extent, Philadelphia and Boston helped finance and organize the trade. So there were uh, strong economic interests that brought the country together before 1850. Then after 1850, there's a realignment, and the most important aspect of that realignment is the rise of the Great Lakes economy. So that where a majority of trade from these northwestern states, and these are the states that people who follow football, Big Ten states, uh, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, eventually Minnesota. Uh, most of their trade goes south before 1850, and then after 1850, uh, overwhelmingly it goes east-west. And it's particularly that area around the Great Lakes that no longer has an economic interest in sectional unity and no longer has an interest in compromising. So that becomes one key component of the new Republican Party that emerges in the mid-1850s. And that development is technologically driven with the, the railroads and canals that connect the Midwestern right. states with the, the eastern seaboard. That's right. Largely uh, canals and lakes. Uh, after 1855, about 15-20% of the goods flowing east-west will come over the rails. But that's uh, a very latter-day uh, development in terms of the events leading to the Civil War, and it's a minority of the goods. But uh, definitely the waterways, the lakes, and then the Erie Canal. So, so those create this, this alignment, um, an economic realignment at least, uh, between the regions where the Northwest now sees itself more closely aligned with uh, uh, with the East. This, it, I mean, this makes sense. I think you you certainly give evidence for this, and it uh, uh, it reflects what's happening in politics, where you, you you point out that the country has two national parties uh, until 1850. Uh, the right. Whigs and the Democrats both have strength in both regions. That's right, and. I look at uh, voting returns. I mean, some of this is my own research. Some of it is I draw upon a lot of research uh, that other individuals have done in states and on the national level and show that in the states and in the federal Congress, the uh, two parties are bitterly divided on economic measures like banking or uh, graduation of land, land sales in the West. The, the Whigs would like to have the funds and use them for development. The Democrats don't see eye to eye on that one. But while they're bitterly divided on these economic and development issues, the two parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, are united on sectional unity. So in 1850, symbolically, but it's also there in the votes, uh, Henry Clay and, and Stephen Douglas, the Whig Clay and the Democrat Douglas, uh, come together to push through the Compromise of 1850. So at that point, there's still this, this sense that, uh, as you say, national unity matters, or, or maybe a better way to say it, that regional identity is not the most determining factor. Um, I've exactly. always seen it that, that the, the watershed, or at least maybe the... The, the canary in the coal mine, the, the moment when you see the trouble approaching is the, the Wilmot Proviso, which is the first major vote where the parties don't divide on party lines, first major congressional vote that divides on regional instead of party lines. Um, let me ask you to think about that for a moment. Sure. Uh, we're going to take a short break and okay. come back in just a minute. We're talking today with Mark Egno, author of Clash of Extremes. We'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. 
the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you one of the 64% of U.S. adults that are afraid to be in deep, open water? Did you know that almost half of all Americans are not able to swim in pools? Millions of Americans have taken swimming lessons and still have not learned to swim. Melon Dash is going to change all of that. Tune in to the Learn to Swim Show, a program that helps adults learn to swim. You'll find out why it's different than teaching a child and how simple it can be. Tune in to the Learn to Swim Show, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. People are looking for hands-on alternatives to conventional psychotherapy. Long-term therapy and medications to treat depression and anxiety are no longer the only answer. Tune in to Holistic Answers to Mental Health with your host, Aileen Neely. Let Aileen show you the techniques of energy psychology. You'll learn some of the more effective methods being used to treat stress, anxiety, marital issues, infertility, and empowerment. Listen every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Mark Agnell. He is the author of Clash of Extremes, Economic Origins of the Civil War. It's a book, uh, I'll call it a controversial book, that... uh, reinvigorates the economic analysis of what went on in the country uh, in the decades before the war leading to the outbreak of fighting in 1861. Um, Mark, I asked you about the Wilmot Proviso, but let me interrupt sure. myself and, and uh, uh, push you on, on a, a point or two. Earlier, when you started talking, you mentioned the, the what you call the uh, moral or idealist interpretation of, of right. uh, the war, and you, you cited James McPherson. I don't read McPherson as, as saying what you have him saying, but I, I, I'll let him argue that sometime for himself. Okay. Um, you do, however, it seems to me there are a couple of times in, in the book where at least I find myself completely in agreement with your argument to the point except at the point where you start characterizing some views of other historians um, generically. For example, uh, you point out that, well, you point out that most professional scholars uh, uh, generally agree on on issues regarding the war, which I would think is is true. Uh, But you make a couple comments. Uh, You say almost all, uh, referring to historians, acknowledge the widespread racism in the North, and very few see African Americans as docile, childlike creatures. I'm just sort of taken aback by the lack of unanimity. Are there any historians who don't acknowledge racism in the North or who do see African Americans as childlike creatures? Very few. I think we're talking people on the fringes. I, I guess I, I would agree with that. Historians, uh, I would be hard pressed to come up with names. Yeah, I, I, I mean, think, I think we're we're talking. There, there are people out there, but uh, there's, I mean, as you know from the wonderful yeah. world of the Internet, we're <laughs> pushing lost causes, but no, it's, uh, by almost all, I, I do mean that. I, I guess that, uh, my feeling is that the, the I don't want to use, you know, I do want to use the phrase straw man, that the, the there are those people on the fringes. I, I won't even use the names of some of them that I can think of who, who make you know utterly absurd arguments, and I'm sure you've encountered them. Right. Uh, but they don't. But you're not addressing. I mean, when you're talking about professional historians, you're not addressing that group. Um, so I'll, I'll, let me push it another step. The argument that the the anti-slavery interpretation that you that you put forward as the majority interpretation. There, I would challenge that too. That it, 
my reading of the literature the last 20 years is that historians don't argue that it was primarily a moral impulse within the North that led to, that, that underlay anti-slavery, but that moral opposition was one element and, and not even the largest element among a series of other economic and uh, political and emotional reasons why people oppose slavery in the North. Okay, I think that individuals, and I mean, Charles Dew is, is in the mix, James McPherson is there, uh, in the aftermath, uh, David Blight is involved, and I'd even group, although it's um, much earlier and perhaps not a uh, much earlier book, uh, Eric Foner's book, which uh, on free soil, free labor, and some of his more recent works, that these individuals don't ignore economics. Mm-hmm. But what they do is they see economics as a background or a precondition. So if you read McPherson or some of the other canonical texts that uh, deal with this, they'll talk about how the North developed a free labor society and the South developed a slave society. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly in there. But those big, broad differences between the North and South then lead to ideologies, North and South. What they don't do is they don't look within those sections. So in other words, it's very hard. I mean, I think it would be impossible for any uh, reputable historian to ignore the fact that the South is based on a slave economy and the North is a a free economy. Mm -hmm. But that broad brush approach isn't really dealing with economics and the Civil War as anything more than a backdrop. So, for example, what I argue in the South is that the South, uh, first of all, has to be regionalized, and that's just to begin with, into the border states, the Upper South and the Lower South. I mean, they had different crops, different relationships with the north it's not simply a slave society and the border states delaware maryland kentucky and missouri had increasingly stronger ties with the north they're becoming more and more integrated in the northern economy in terms of where they send their goods where their trade is and they remain uh, part of the union i mean they they don't secede uh, even though there are some secessionists in all of those states the uh, the Upper South, the four states of the Upper South, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, where you are, Tennessee and Arkansas, uh, they only secede after war breaks out and they're forced to choose sides. It's really in the Deep South that secession commences and begins before the actual fighting. And even within the Deep South, there are divisions, there are deep divisions. If you look at the secession conferences, the the conventions over secession, something like 40 and in some cases 50% of the population in most of those seven states were against immediate secession. Now, being opposed to immediate secession, people uh, spread out across the spectrum of views, but they didn't want to secede when the convention did secede. And there, there are divisions. And the reason I argue that the current interpretations ignore that is that they don't look at these crucial divisions within the South. And it's true. I mean, I certainly, my book has been misused by some neo-Confederates to say, oh, it's all about economics. It's not about slavery. That's a misuse of what I've written. And and what I say emphatically and clearly, and in some cases repeatedly, is that the uh, people who led the secession drive, the Jefferson Davises and the Yanceys and others, uh, were ardent defenders of slavery, and they wanted to do that. They wanted to you know, preserve a system, and they feared that it would be abolished. But uh, you know, Go ahead. Uh, just, just to wrap up this point. Sure. But then the question is, why, 
why those individuals? In other words, if you're going to explain secession, it's not enough, as some individuals have done, to read the secession commissioners who talked about secession. You have to ask why only a particular group within the 15 slave states took that position and why others, when these secession commissioners fanned out and went to every single state, they were politely listened to, but they were rejected. And it's only by looking at the economic and other underpinnings, they say, never is it economics purely, but most significantly economics, that you understand why particular individuals did. And the current interpretation, you, you would be hard-pressed to read through uh, Potter's book, to say an old one, or McPherson or Freeling, uh, who takes this same point of view, and uh, really fine explanations that come down to uh, this fine-tuning, this fine-grained analysis of the economy. Well, actually, Freeling was the one I was going to bring up as a, a counterexample because he does exactly that. He, he looks at the, the South and divides it into the Upper South and Lower South and then shows even the divisions within there, although his, his conceptual framework is more based on contingency and the working out of, of, of individual chance events to explain why, why 1860 and not 1850 or 1870 uh, as the moment of secession. But but I think he does exactly what you do in terms of subdividing the South. Well, I think, uh, okay, I uh, accept that. And uh, but I think that when Freeling comes down to it, I mean, I, I agree, and I, I probably overstated my case, including there's a lot of very valuable work, and so it would probably be more somebody like Charles Dew and McPherson who would take the position that I'm uh, speaking about. But I think when uh, when Freeling, of course, Freeling only deals with the South. He doesn't uh, write mm-hmm. about the the North. That when he comes down to it, it's really it's contingency and more defensive slavery than it is uh, economic motivation. Well, again, you made the point about the the neo Confederates misusing your work, and I, I think you're very clear uh, in in your writing that. You are not saying slavery had nothing to do with it. You are not saying it's all economics and not slavery. And, and you, you specifically say neo-Confederates are on shaky ground when they try to make that argument. Right. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I, I, I honestly found myself sort of going back and forth as I read your book. I would read something like that. In that same page, you acknowledge uh, Lincoln's comment in the second inaugural, all knew that slavery was somehow the cause of the war. And... I, I guess it comes down to what what I said in the the, the Lincoln quote at the start. Uh, uh, your your facts are are you know unimpeachable. You, you present the, this evidence, and as you correctly point out, uh, neo Confederates can't argue it's just about economics, uh, or that slavery didn't matter. And then, in, in, in a way that I could not grasp, you then argue, but it is more economics than slavery, and. I guess I don't see the difference between the two. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say, that, that uh, those who defend, those who chose to secede were doing so to defend a way of life that was both economic and so, social, that was based on slavery, and therefore was both an economic institution, but also a social institution. Right, uh, and for sure. The, the question, Jerry, is this. Uh, why did the individuals who chose to secede, if they're a minority, and they are a minority, I mean, they're mm-hmm. certainly a minority within the 15 slave states. Right. And even within the Deep South, I would argue they're a minority. The, uh, within the Confederate states, not just within the slave states, but within the Confederate states, uh, there's something like 100,000 individuals who uh, who fight for the Union Army. And the issue then, if you're going to say, I mean, if you're going to say it's slavery, then the next question I ask is why did only certain people put forth the argument that they should defend slavery and other individuals who were also slave owners. It's not 
at least in the deep south, it's not simply small farmers versus slave owners. There are individuals like James Alcorn in Mississippi or uh, Alexander Stevens in Georgia, and they're just representatives who aren't in favor of immediate secession. The slavery certainly uh, was a concern of those who seceded, but the question, I'll put it briefly, is why only certain slaveholders, why only certain regions within the South? And I argue that to understand why particular slaveholders, regions, states within the, the South did and didn't, you have to look at economics. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense, and you showed data where, where the areas with high, higher wealth uh, were more likely to secede. Um, but to the, the extent that higher wealth meant higher slaveholding, uh, I guess what, what can, comes to mind for me is uh, another Lincoln quote, his Chicago speech in, uh, I think it was 1859, where he says, let us discard all this quibbling about this man and that man and the other man, this race and that race being inferior, and once again hold up uh, a standard that all men are created equal. Here I, I, I'm tempted to say let us discard the, the, I'll call it even quibbling over whether it's economics or, or slavery. Uh, what you're showing is, is who did support and who didn't support secession. And the people who do support it are slaveholders so it is slavery and they're the the wealthier strata so it is economics uh and that only makes sense it would be like arguing luxury car owners are more likely to do something than you know drivers of uh, a used ford pinto uh it could be the car ownership or it could be the economic class but they go together in uh in states like alabama georgia and mississippi the divisions not between slaveholders and non-slaveholders. It's not between wealthy and less wealthy. It's on geographical lines. So slaveholders in the northern part of the state, like uh, Alcorn in Mississippi, and those in the uh, southern part of the state, like Jefferson Davis, uh, the same sort of splits. It's it's not in those states. There's really good data we have. I mean, Worcester is one of... Uh, Worcester looks at it. There, there are studies of each of these individual states uh, going back, uh, some of these were done in 1960s, shows no lines of division along wealth or slaveholding between the two sides. So but, it's, it's geography, it's, uh, it's some of its uh, places of birth, uh, some of it's the links, uh, trade links with the north. There's an increasing overland trade in cotton that flows north. Uh, more and more of it's being diverted, and you have slaveholders in the southern parts of those states involved in one economy that where the goods flow out to the ports and those in the northern parts of the states it goes north and if you look at the votes in the secession conventions it reflects those differences so the argument then is it is the uh, it is the economic ties with one region or another that uh, that influence people as to which absolutely. direction they're going to go absolutely it's a different picture uh, in the Upper South and in the border states, but the uh, crucial section for understanding secession is the cotton area, and there it's uh, it's not uh, at least in in those states. I mean, for example, in uh, in Louisiana, it's the sugar planters who drag their heels because they appreciate the federal tariff, where it's the cotton planters in Louisiana that are more uh, likely to be secessionists. Well, let, so it's the, not slavery. I mean, if you want to understand the votes in these states, slavery is a, is a very poor guide to the division among the slaveholders. At the same time, the, the slaveholders do, are committed to the institution. Uh, you know, those who don't vote for secession, some don't vote for it because they don't think it's tactically the right way to protect slavery, but but they all agree that, that they want to protect slavery. Uh, none, none of them say we're not going to secede because we want to give up the institution. Right. Uh, I mean, there, there are very few abolitionists among the slaveholding community. Mm-hmm. None. No, well, uh, not uh, none. Yeah. The Grimkeys, but uh, there are very few. Right, and they would have to leave if, if they did feel that. Yeah, exactly. Certainly. So, 
Well, let me ask this then. If and I guess this gets back to my quibbling point, whether it just becomes an argument about semantics rather than than anything more substantial. If there had not been a divide over slavery, if if the two sides had had their different economies, but the North maintained a vestigial or even a substantial uh, slave labor economy for for crafts and other things, uh, or if the South had, had produced cotton with, with indentured servants or even free labor, uh, would you still have a war? Well, uh, I mean, that's that's quite a counterfactual. Let me put the counterfactual. Let me spin you a counterfactual on that one. Let's say the whole South had been like the Upper South and the border states, which were slaveholding states. Would there have been a war? And to that one, I'd say emphatically no, because the, the border states did not secede. The Upper South did not secede until war actually broke out. It wasn't simply having slaveholding states. I mean, if you say slavery is the cause of the war, you have to explain why only seven of the 15 slaveholding states seceded before fighting occurred. I guess the, the question, though, but they do fight. They, they do fight, and, the, and they, they end up giving up 600,000 lives over something that divides these two regions. And right. I, I have a hard time, counterfactually, seeing a, a situation where if both sides have slavery or neither side has slavery, they, but they do have different economic systems, uh, different, you know, one is more agricultural, one has cotton, the other doesn't, uh, and, and the West and the Northeast established ties through canals and later railroads. I don't see them going to war over the tariff. I don't think they went going to war over rivers and harbors. I don't think they went to war over the tariffs or rivers or harbors. No, no, I don't think they did either. But I I do feel that the tariff and the rivers and harbors created a party that didn't want to compromise. So the South secedes because there's a party that takes power that refuses to compromise. There were grave issues before 1850, Mm -hmm. but... The party in power, whether it be Democrat or Whig, always was open to making deals. The Republicans were not. Yeah, and, and there, I, I would agree. I, I think that, and I think most historians would agree that that is the the precipitating factor. Um, now, you you describe in your chapter on the the rise of the Republican Party uh, and, and the, the triumph of the Republicans that economic issues are. Uh, ultimately, you'd say more important than than uh, anti-slavery, and right uh, again, there uh, uh, some of the evidence you give seems to point the other way. You point out that that orators don't mention the tariff uh, in 1860. Uh, Lincoln certainly doesn't have anything to say about it, uh, but they have plenty to say about anti-slavery. Uh, okay, uh, a couple points in that. First of all. The only Republican plank that deals with slavery is non-extension. Yeah, I mean, that, the Republicans is, yeah, uh, yeah. cite the Declaration of Independence, so they have mm-hmm. a, a wonderful, noble-sounding preamble to what they do. But in terms of platform, they have a slew of economic measures, but only non-extension. And non-extension, this is a big point in the book, non-extension is mixed in terms of why the Republicans favor it. Because for a lot of these people, uh, it's an economic measure. It's going to protect the West for northern, free, white, small farmers. A lot of those individuals want to keep all blacks out. And even Lincoln says that. I mean, Lincoln's willing to cater to both motives. He says eventually it'll lead to extinction. Fair enough. But he also says whatever you feel about that, it's going to open up the West for white settlers. He uses white in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So I don't see non-extension as a pure anti-slavery measure. I see it as very mixed. And for a well, lot I, of people, but see, that, I think that's it's an economic I would, measure. I, I guess that's where I would disagree with the use of the language, because I, I see it as a, absolutely an anti-slavery measure. That's its definition, is to keep slavery out. But I would completely agree with you that it's it's economic... Uh, and I would even, and I would disagree with your your characterization that historians say, oh, it's it's 
it's out of the dedication to African Americans that if, if I think that's that's sort of the simplistic argument that that a lot of historians have been trying to overcome for a number of years is this misunderstanding of slavery of anti-slavery as a uh, a sort of modern uh, egalitarian uh, you know rainbow multicultural movement. Uh, anyone who's looked at the period knows that, of course, that's not it. That it's that most northern white northerners are racist. That uh, and that many anti-slavery people oppose slavery for reasons that have nothing to do with the benefit of the slaves themselves. Uh, but I guess I would, so I agree with everything you're saying. I just wouldn't characterize that. Well, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who emphasizes the economic motives as uh, prevalent in the Republican outlook. I mean, I, I don't deny that there's a component, but the abolitionists are about 5% of the population, the individuals right. like of uh, Sumner and Stevens are maybe another 10% of the population. Mm-hmm. Most of the North is uh, really much more interested in free soil for their economic ends. Uh, I, let me ask you this. Uh, that one element, and see, I agree with, with all that you're arguing here, that, that it's not altruistic, it's not uh, out of a human rights argument. I mean, Lincoln makes a human rights argument, but it's quite limited, and it's not a civil rights argument, it's just a bare right. human rights argument. Uh, but the one element that, that I, I did think you left out, that, that, I, that I missed in, in the book, is, is the one that, that William Lee Miller makes in, in arguing about slavery uh, and others made elsewhere, the North's, some, the, the slave power argument, the, the North's resistance to the idea that the South gets everything it wants, the, the South pushes the North around with the gag rule, with the suppression of males, uh, with its domination of the Supreme Court and the presidency, and the South is a minority in the country, yet uh, with the Fugitive Slave Act, they actually get to come into the North and enforce their laws and force Northerners to enforce their laws. The North has just had it on a political and emotional level that has nothing to do with the benefit of the slaves. So one can be anti-slavery by being because they're anti-South. Well, I certainly think that's in the mix. But the uh, again, here's uh, Jerry. Here's the way my take on that, and that is, if that's true, why is it that only certain people in the North join the Republican Party? I mean, the Republican Party is a minority party in 1856, mm-hmm. and it's a 60 percent party, meaning 40 percent of don't vote for Lincoln, they chiefly vote for Douglas in 1860. Who are those 60%? Who are the 40% that vote against him? And the Republican Party forms around the Great Lakes in New England. And so while all these grievances are there, they only seem to motivate a particular group of Northerners. I guess, I, and I would agree. I think that's one of the, the best things in the book is how you, the, the 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 maps that show where the Republican Party clusters, uh, how its strength is connected to these economic ties. Um, having said all that, uh, the fact is that what they they cluster around is a party that is devoted to the non-extension of slavery. Right. Uh, and so, so I get. I, in part, not extension of slavery is only part of what the Republicans are devoted to, because the Republicans, I mean, one of the things about the book, uh, and I guess we probably want to have a few more minutes. Sure. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah we are running out of time. Okay. So let me just add a couple points. One sure. is, as you said in your introduction, it's a controversial book, and the website, which uh, some of your listeners may want to go to, is a simple one. It's www w clash of extremes all one word dot com they can see far wide-ranging views uh, the other point uh, to follow up on what you just raised is that the republican party the book carries on through the civil war years in reconstruction and the republican party is not simply a party that's concerned about slavery it's also a party which very quickly during the war passes a lot of economic legislation. And some of that economic legislation, like tariffs and internal improvements and railroads, is, is spelled out in their platform. And they end up, I mean, I think the lasting legacy of this Republican Party is building a national economy, a northern economy, not 
uh, helping African Americans who, by the end of Reconstruction, are free, tremendously important, but uh, subjugated with Republican compliance. I, I would agree completely with that. And, and uh, the, the Republicans enact basically the Whig platform, the internal improvements, the higher tariff, uh, everything but the National Bank. Uh, and to the extent they get Democrats, former Democrats and former know-nothings to go along with that, uh, I think it's very persuasive the way you show how they come from these regions where those, where that was the prevailing economy. Uh, I, I guess I, I will say in conclusion that, that having read the book, I didn't disagree with any of the, the factual uh, arguments or, or really with anything except the characterization of, of everything you show as being somehow economic and not more multifaceted than that, not, not right. a, a combination of, of factors of which the e- uh, economics is certainly critical. I, I, I can imagine having a war between a slave and a non-slave portion of the country, even if their economies were similar. I can't imagine having a war between them if their economies were different, but neither one had slavery. Well, um, I agree with that. And, and, I mean, and in that I, sense, I would I, never. I do quote, as you've earlier mentioned, yes. Lincoln's statement that everyone agrees that in some way it was about slavery. Sure. And, and in that sense, I, I, I mean, I've, I've written a book called Did Lincoln Own Slaves? And so if anyone's guilty of setting up a straw man, uh, it's me and, and uh, asking a ridiculous question in the title of a book. Uh, it's a great title. Uh, so so I, I can't <laughs> complain about someone who looks for controversy. But I, I enjoy <laughs> I the book. The I like <laughs> and the answer to Did Lincoln Own Slaves is what? Uh, it's a big no. Uh, that's right. Well, Mark, we're out of time. Thank you so much for being on the show today. And listeners, you'll want to decide for yourselves. Take a look at Clash of Extremes by Mark Egnall. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.